the airborne. That patch got you any place you wanted to go, and you didn't have to lie or anything like that. All you had to do is see that patch, and people knew what you'd been doing. I'm very proud of the service that we did. And it's not an individual thing about me. It's what the unit did. I don't go off of individuals. We knew what had to be done, and we did it. Welcome to Glorious Professionals, brought to you by Go Ruck Media. I'm Jason, here with Rich in the Champagne Room in Florida. Our guest on this episode is Jim Pee Wee Martin, one of the Tacoa Originals, a World War II paratrooper from the 101st Airborne Division Golf Company. I, I happen to have the good fortune to have grown up just a few miles from him in Dayton, Ohio. And while we were up at Team Assessment, also in Dayton, Ohio, Rich and I invited him over for a chat. He's 100 years old now and one of the few remaining paratroopers of his day. Just a little bit about Pee Wee. He entered the military in 1942 and volunteered for the 101st Airborne Division, what became the Screaming Eagles. He and the original Tacoa men went through intense training at Camp Tacoa, Georgia, where the 506 was formed under Colonel Robert F. Sink. You might recognize that name from the Band of Brothers. Easy Company was right there with them. Martin talks with us about his decision to serve in the culling process at Currahee Mountain, from 6,500 to 1,650 men over the first six months. Despite being the smallest in his unit, hence his nickname Peewee, he says the only worry was if he was going to be able to stay. The night before D-Day, June 6, 1944, Martin's company parachuted over Normandy and touched down in enemy-controlled territory right behind Utah Beach. They fought for 43 days as part of the Normandy campaign, including in Bloody Gulch, before moving on to invade Holland, holding the line in Belgium during the Battle of the Bulge, and finishing off by taking Berchtesgaden, site of Hitler's eagle's nest in the German Alps. Martin celebrated his 100th birthday this year with a mass parachute drop, including two of his granddaughters, using a vintage aircraft. He talks about returning to Ohio in a time of continued rationing, marrying Donna, his wife of 72 years before she passed two years ago, and building a life for them and their five children. He says he rarely thinks about the war, except during talks like this, because he and his fellows, quote, had more important things to do. So here's the deal on our talk. Pee-wee came over to my dad's garage. He got a ride over and hopped out of the pickup truck when he showed up. I mean, he's full of energy. And, and he was very eager to talk to us. As you might imagine, he's the kind of guy that looks you in the eye and shakes your hand and you say your name, he says his name and, and you, get on to, you get on to business. So he came in the garage, he found his seat. We didn't really have a perfect setup planned. We kind of didn't know how to accommodate him best. And as, as it turned out, what he was most comfortable with was having all of us around. So there were probably 10 people, maybe, maybe 12 around. So this format is a lot different than it has been with other podcasts here. And what we lack in flow, we think this conversation makes up for in perspective because it's not every day you get to chat with a member of the greatest generation who fought on D-Day and Battle of the Bulge and who was instrumental in defeating Nazi Germany. So it's a pretty damn good afternoon to, to spend a little bit of time with Pee Wee. And uh, on, on the flip side of that, Rich and I had, we've had about a month or so to process the interview and we'll give you some of our perspective on Pee Wee and just life in general in, in the outro. Now, enjoy a little time with Pee Wee. You want to hear the story of how I got in? Yes, sir, it'd be an honor. When I was five years old, I saw a parachute jump at a county fair at Bedford, Indiana. And I thought someday I'd like to do that. And then I was more interested in submarines. Jules Verne's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, 
and Lieutenant Mammon that came up with a rescue thing and all of that. So I decided that I wasn't going to go because we'd been over there, and the guys from World War One were coming back from back from duties over there. You could walk down the street at night in the summer and hear them trying to uh, breathe, and they'd been gas and they had burns, and so I decided that I wasn't going to go. And then I got in. I was in the defense industry, and I didn't have to go. And then after the World War One, this country became isolationist, and we passed two laws. One is the United States would never again engage in combat unless we were attacked. The second law said we would not supply any material for anybody that was fighting. So the British were in a bad shape. The Germans were talking to the, Ger the British about them joining them. And our people at the top went to them and said, now look, you can't do that. They said, well, we don't have anything, and if they're going to give us stuff to fight with, we'll, we'll probably join them. And our people said, we'll double anything that the Germans give you. I said, well, we're not sure about it. And then our negotiator said to him, let me tell you something. You join with the Germans, you're the enemy, and we'll bomb you out of this till there's nothing left. And they... The British Prime Minister said, but, but you were the ones that made this country. He said, that's right, but you join the Germans, you're the enemy, and we'll, we'll take care of it right away. So finally they decided to go with us. But then they didn't have anything, and Churchill wanted us to go over to France immediately. Our people said, we can't do it, we don't have anything to fight with. After the war, we... Like everybody else, we cut up down. We only had 400,000 people in, in the army. And so it's gonna take a long time. Then in two years, uh, we got from 400,000 to 16 million people. And then people said, well, what are they gonna do about running the factories? And then I was the one that was with the people that said the women are going to do it. And everybody laughed and said, well, hell, those women work in factories. I said, some of them do now, and they're better than the men. Well, they did replace it. They really did a better job than some of the men because first time in their lives they got a paycheck and had money they could spend without their husband telling them what to do. And then uh, we had that lead time, and then... Uh, Churchill, he kept saying he wanted us to go over right away, and Stalin wanted us to go over right away. And they had Barbarossa, you know what that was. Well, then Hitler got paranoid, and he thought they were cheating on him. So he tore up that non-aggression pact, and they had two armies up there. Now, if he had done that a little sooner, those two armies wouldn't have been down there, and we probably couldn't have survive if we'd had those two armies down there. But they did bring the paratroopers down that were up there, and they fought against us. There were three units of them. And of course, after a while, we we listened to the radio and Hitler ranting and raving and then damn Catholic priest saying to blow up the, the places and spread the blood around and don't go. And boy, I got upset about that. And then it became apparent Britain and France 
if they didn't get some help, they were going under. And that's when I decided to change my, my mind and go. Well, I, I worked at Johnson Tool and Engineering, and I told my boss that. And boy, he threw a fit. I said, you know, Ed, I'm only a, an apprentice. It doesn't really matter. And he said, I don't give a damn. These contracts are cost plus 10%. And for every hour you're here, I get $5 clear. And I don't give a damn if you sleep in the rag bin. So then I asked the guy, I went, I went down and signed up for the Navy. And I passed the physical and I signed up. And I said, how soon is the some of them going to be on. They said, well, they're building it. It'll be about six months. We'll keep you informed. And I said, six months? I can't go back and ask Dad for a job for six months after blowing up the way he did. So I, I went across the hall and joined this parachute thing. That was brand new. Bradley wanted it. And he had watched what the Germans did at Crete. Well, they won the battle, but after that, Hitler didn't, didn't want him more paratroopers because they suffered terrible losses. But Bradley was convinced if we made some changes, we should have a, a parachute unit. So he went to Roosevelt. He pitched it to him, and Roosevelt said, I'll tell you what, you can have a parachute unit, but there's going to be some things about it. You can have any personnel you want. Now was the time when if you were in training and a guy in this unit saw somebody over here he wanted, he put in a requisition and that guy would have to go over here. And he said, not going to happen paratroopers. The only way a paratrooper is going to get out is if he decides to quit or he gets ZI'd. ZI means zone of the interior. He's hurt so bad he can't go back in combat or he gets killed. Nobody can take him out of there for any reason whatsoever. And then he got uh, the other top general marshal to go along with him. So then they appointed a guy named Major Lee and told him to go out to Missoula, Montana and see how the smoke dumpers did it. And he went out of there and stayed several weeks and came back and, and said that uh, with a few changes, uh, I think it would work really well. And Major Lee went from a major to a general within a matter of a couple of weeks. And then, of course, he got heart trouble and had to be out. And then General Taylor, he was artillery commander for the 82nd. They put him in, and he was 42 years old, and he'd never jumped or trained. And so his first jump in combat, he didn't even have any training, but he went. Well, also then, we had a lot of false starts where we'd get clear out to the planes and starting to load, and Patton would overrun it, or somebody would overrun the target. And after several of those, finally we went in, put us under a machine gun guard with concertina our wire so we couldn't get out. And we are in there bragging about going over and kill all the Germans. And here we were, we'd never even been in any place where anybody fired a rifle at us. And we talk about it after the war with the German paratroopers and we become friends with, and they laugh about it. And they said, hell, our whole life has been nothing but fighting, and you guys were going to come on and whip the hell out of us and bragging all that stuff. 
And I said, yeah, and we found out a little different too, didn't we? So we laugh about that now. But anyway, finally did come a time we knew where we were going. And uh, our commander, Wolverton, he was our battalion commander. He made a real nice speech. And he was a wonderful guy. No bullshit about him at all. And you could talk to him, go up and ask him uh, to talk to you, and he'd let you. Now, if you wanted to talk to an officer, you had to go up and ask him permission if you could talk. And if he didn't want to talk to you, he'd just shut up, and that was it. But Wolverton never did that. And then as we were getting to get ready to go on the plane, they had some pills. And that guy said, what the heck's the pills for? And I said, well, you don't know what they are? That's Dramamine pills. And I don't know why in the world we're giving it. Well, they said it was for to make us not so afraid of things. And I said, well, and it had an adverse effect. A lot of guys hit the ground and went to sleep, believe it or not. <laughs> Woke up the next day and they felt really guilty about it. So I didn't take the pills. And uh, most of them did. And they were supposed to take them. And I said, no, I'm not taking them. And after the war, I talked to General Taylor. I said, why do you have us take Dramamine pills? And he said, I didn't even know that was going on. And he said, I wouldn't have allowed that if I'd have known it. And I said, well, I've never found out who authorized it, but it sure caused a lot of problem. Jim, tell them what happened when your submarine was ready. Oh, <laughs> those guys had come to our house periodically to check on me. And they came there one day and and my, my mother said, uh, well, he's, he's in the Army. And I said, no, he's in the Navy. She got some letters out here. He's down in a place called Tacoa and getting trained as a paratrooper. These two guys, that we got enlisted as a deserter. And they, they looked at each other and said, well, if he's, if he's in the service, that's okay. And they left. That wouldn't happen today, you know it wouldn't. But things were pretty loose at that time. People lied to get in. We had one kid who was only 15 years old that got in and went through the war with us. That's another funny thing. Every month, our battalion surgeon would come in and warn us about associating with these camp follower women. And he made us so damn dramatic that this 15-year-old kid wouldn't shake hands with a woman for a couple of weeks. Scared him to death. <laughs> and that's how those things happen. And then you talk about all these people today with sexual problems. That didn't happen. You know why? We were told over and over and over, if a woman comes, says that somebody bothered them, the whole company's out in the street, and she goes down the line, if she puts her hand on your shoulder, you're going to hang. No court martial. No nothing, you're gonna hang. We had plenty of promiscuity, and a lot of the older British women were upset, people 35 or 40, that all this was going on. And I told them, don't worry about it. Anytime a war happens, all the morality, all the rules are out the window. You don't have time for that kind of stuff. And when this is over, you're going to go back just the way Britain was before, and that's what happened. It, the same thing happened. We went over there, and then, of course, you, you know, they postponed it for a, a day. We left England at 
seven o'clock in the evening on the 5th. And at 12 o'clock on the 5th at night, we jumped into France. So we were in there fighting all that time. And then we got a message that said that storm three days later came in. And if we can't get 150,000 people over in the next couple of days, we're going to pull out and you guys are on your own. You know what happened? We just kept on fighting. Those, those things happened. Yeah, we'd have been prisoners for the rest of the time. There wasn't a single person ever left because he was afraid of dying or anything like that. It just didn't occur to us. Hey, so Jim, can, can we back up a little bit? You were born in 1921, yeah. right? That's the Roaring Twenties, right after World War I. Yeah. It was wild. And, <laughs> I mean, how did you grow up? What kind of ingrained your, your work ethic, your way of life? What, 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 are, you, what are the strongest memories? Because strongest memories as, as a boy. There's the roaring 20s and then the depression hit and everybody was poor. Now there were a few people that had businesses and they were rich, but nobody felt anything against them like they do today. We know that they weren't in a business a few of us wouldn't have jobs, but most everybody was out and everybody had a gun, but you didn't use it for anything but shooting small game, not for sport, but to eat. And there was a gun in every, damn near every living room and every house you went into. You could go down to the store at Montgomery Ward or Sears Roebuck and buy a gun, get on the streetcar and go back home with it. Nobody thought a thing about it. I had my first gun when I was 13 years old, and a couple other guys had guns. And we went around and hunted pigeons, shot pigeons of quail to eat. And nobody ever said a word to us, no permit or nothing. It just A gun was part of your, the way you lived. And we grew up, and there was only really one order. You had breakfast, and the order was be home for supper. And we're free to do any damn thing we want. Run around every place, the woods, and a lot of farms that were not being farmed now. We hunted, and we uh, went in the rivers and fished and swam and just anything you wanted to do. It, it was a wonderful way to grow up. Who was influential? Your mom, your dad? You said your dad was the, the emotional type, well, and your mom wasn't, right? He, he, he was emotional because they had a French background. And he had been in the 69th Infantry, but the war was over. But when he was getting ready to get on the ship, this officer pulled his glasses off and hell, they were that thick. He said, you're not going anyplace. And that, he always resented that, but he, he didn't really want me to go, but he didn't oppose it. But my mother, she was a stoic and it didn't bother her a damn bit. So I went and then they asked me, do you want us to walk down to the train station with you? And I said, no, I'll walk down myself. You just stay here. So before that, what, what's the most, what, what kind of parents were your parents? Our, our parents were wonderful. My dad was more restrictive than me. He thought there's certain things that I shouldn't be doing. And my mother said, no, he's going to grow up free. This is a free country. And we're not going to do what these other countries do. And so she had the most influence on that. And he didn't buck her. Now, he was an engineer. And we talked 
all the time about engineering things, but he never talked about morality to me. My mother did. She talked about to me and my sister both. And I played with four kids and my dad was rich. We were filthy rich until this thing happened that one of his partners did that threw him into bankruptcy and, and he wasn't going to have that. So he put up $185 or 85000 and then they sold the patents to uh, RCA. And uh, so they didn't go to bankruptcy. But the bankers said, let it go bankrupt, Jim. Get rid of your partners and we'll back you and you can come in on your own. He said, no, I can make things. I can invent things, but I'm not a businessman. He had invented a, a motion picture projector. And at that time, they had motion pictures. And then they had somebody down here playing a piano and they'd put things on the screen to read. And sometimes they had a record they played with it. Well, he had it so it was on the side of the 35 millimeter screen and you could actually see the people talking, hear him talking. So that went over pretty big. And then of course, the other thing came up, but we had a wonderful growing up and um, you know, um, Another thing, my dad and mother both went to college. Who, who went to college at that time? Now, my mother's, the college she went to taught two things. One, to be a teacher or a business person. She took business. And my dad uh, went to MIT, and he uh, went in on a full scholarship, four-year scholarship in textile industry. Everything paid. And second year, he went over to electrical engineering. Foremost electric person in the world that made everything possible was one of his professors. Well, there's a stunt, half a dozen of them some night pull a little stunt that nobody would think about today, but they told him they'd have to all be out for one semester and then come back next semester. Well, he got a job designing electric things for airplanes and and boats and engines and automobiles. And he was making so much money, he never went back. And we had a good growing up. We didn't live high. One of the things we did one time, went to Montgomery Ward and they bought a linoleum for the floor and they bought a, a couple of throw rugs and a chair. And the neighbors all came to see that. It came on Railway Express. People just didn't have money and didn't buy it. That's the only thing that we did that was different than neighbors. And I played with those kids and I talked different. I used English that most kids didn't use, but nobody said anything. And then of course we grew up and we saw all this stuff going on over there. And, and that's when I decided to go and what happened and got in. And yeah, I'm glad I went into paratroopers. Was it a hard transition from, I mean, some degree of affluence as a kid to... None, no. Because the army, it takes away everything, right? It all your privacy, a, all your... It was no problem. Uh, we called people all kinds of names, and nobody thought anything about it. Nobody got their feelings hurt over anything like that. And then the thing was, a lot of people have asked, wasn't it hard to go from growing up to where you're saving lives and that sort of thing, and all of a sudden you're killing people? I said it was nothing at all. Nobody ever said anything about it. We never talked about it. We just knew it had to be done, and we did it. We saw what happened in World War I. 
World War I is still going on. Do you know that? That didn't finish. It's an armistice. It's not done yet. So what was the main takeaway to you for, from World War I? Never to go again because we lost more people from living conditions than we did in combat. And all these guys that were gassed, you saw all these guys living with you that had burns and gas and all that. It wasn't worth it. We weren't going to go again. And that's why we passed those laws. And that's what made it difficult for us to help the British. And then lend lease came up. And that's what saved us. We could lend things to them. We could lease things to them. And so we got that straightened out. Okay, let, let's go back to Curry. Let's go back to the, the training. H how did you change from the day you showed up to when you, you put your, your jump wings on? Well, our unit, the 506 Regiment, is 2,150 people. And when Bradley put it out, he was going to start this super unit, 6,500 people signed up. Then when you signed up before, you'd go to jump school at Fort Benning for four weeks and you come out and you're a paratrooper. And they usually lost 25% of the people while you're doing that. And Colonel Sink said, we're not going to do that. And he came up with what he called Airborne Basic for four months. From the middle of July till the 1st of December, we went through this training that he had. And we went from 6,500 to 1,650 people. That's how stringent it was. Anything at all that you did wrong, you're out. But, but how, how did you change? Didn't bother me a bit because, hell, the guys like me that grew up during the Depression, it didn't change just a bit because, hell, we were used to being out and living camping and all that kind of thing. The living conditions didn't bother us a bit. We were used to hard work. If you didn't work, you didn't eat. And so when we got in there, hell, they're feeding you. They're giving you your clothes. And I'll tell you how bad it was when our shoes were bad. We used to put cardboard in them. And then it got to the point where they had uh, rubber things that you could glue on. It cost 10 cents a piece. Oh, we thought we were in, really been in luxury because now we had no hole in the bottom and you walk in the water, you didn't come up in your shoe. That's how bad it was. So what was the hardest part? There had to be something that The was... hardest part was psychological. You were continually reminded about, are you good enough for this? Are you a man? And your fear was that you might wash out. That was the biggest fear, that you might get thrown out and you didn't want to leave. And that's why it was so damned hard. But see, we were the experimental unit too. We were the first ones that down there and all the experimental stuff was done. And then there was a lot of planning going on and the planners would set it after we'd go on some of these missions and they'd jump us in trees and things. And then they'd try to make an assessment. What we're trying to achieve, is it worth the amount of men are gonna be hurt or killed? And if that was gonna to be too expensive, they'd either change the way it did or drop that. And so we were the guinea pigs. So, so what was the low point for you? I mean, we've all been through, you know, the cool kids schools and stuff. You, you set the bar, the standard. Uh, I really all... didn't have a low point. None, none of the people with me had a low point. We were worried that we might be 
not good enough and throwing out, but there's no low point. Hell, we were out there every damn day going from four in the morning till five in the evening, and then you go back and, and rev, uh, uh, eat your supper and then have uh, probably three or four nights a week a, a night problem, and you go all night long out in the rain, snow, whatever it was. We didn't mind that. There was really no low point. The only worry was, am I going to be able to stay here? Jim, tell them about your your physical condition when you joined, when you started at BASIC, when you graduated from BASIC, and then when you left Curry. Didn't you gain some weight? Well, my when I joined, I weighed 105 pounds. Most of the guys weighed around 130. People weren't as big then as they are today. And then we did all this experimental work, and a lot of it, awful lot of it was dropped because it, it was deemed unnecessary or it cost more than it was worth. And that's the big thing. People said, all oh, those guys didn't care about you, just threw you in there, get killed. No, I never met an officer that didn't, didn't agonize over when we went in. But there's one thing that I told some of my officers, I know they're giving you a mission and you don't think it's gonna work, but you're gonna to have to make it work. And even though you think it might not work, don't you ever let any of your people know that because if you do, the whole thing will fall apart. And most of the time they were optimistic and their platoon was optimistic and they won. Very rarely did they break down. Sometimes they did. And that was a lot of it due to poor planning. Grandpa, tell him about Colonel Sink and how he prepared you. Because he was one tough son of a bitch, wasn't he? Well, when they got him, they knew they had to have somebody really tough to do this. And they got Colonel Sink, he was a West Point grad, and he came in and his object was to make men out of boys. And he was so damn hard on us. And then it's another thing. People did start bitching about not enough food. You're being too hard on us. And he called us out and sat on a hillside and he walked back and forth. And he, he was a very calm sort of person, never raised his voice at all. He walked back and forth, said, I understand you guys are unhappy. And everybody said, yeah, you don't like the food. No, there's not enough food. No. You think I'm too damn hard on you? Yeah. He said, well, I'm going to tell you something. It's going to get a hell of a lot harder before it gets any better. And he turned around, walked away, and that was the end of it. So who is your best friend? The, the historian Bando, Mark Bando. He's the unofficial historian for the 101st. He's written seven books on us. And he and I got uh, hooked up pretty early. He's of Japanese descent. He served 25 years on the De Detroit Police Department. Who was your best friend that you went to war with? Well, I didn't go to anybody that I knew. No, no, from, from Curry or, you know, in, in the 101st that, that you, you then deployed with. I had several people. There was Don Scoglin, there's uh, Grimes, Maggio. There's about six of us that hung together, worked. We went on uh, leave together. Now, Scoglin, his mother did not want him to go to the service, 
but his father had committed suicide when he was 13. And he joined up so he could send money back to her. And she was very bitter about it. And then, of course, he got killed. And uh, Al Spiller, he was another one who was in our group. He and I, he lived in Peoria, and I went over to Peoria and picked him up. I had a, a 41 Ford I'd bought before I went to service. And we drove up to Minneapolis, stayed with his girlfriend and her mother, and they knew Don's mother. And for 10 days, she talked to him, trying to get his mother to let us come, and she wouldn't do it. She wouldn't talk to us at all. Jim was Because she was so bitter about her son dying. I do talk now to his, uh, one of the grandchildren in that family, but I didn't tell them all this stuff about his, their mother not talking to us. Some things you don't tell them. And then about three, four years ago, I was talking to a, a colonel who lived on Mead Road near me and telling him about my lieutenant got shot the first day that he had done something stupid. He was supposed to be with us, but in the jump he got separated. He was with the H Company down at the other end of the area, and he stuck his head up four times in the, second, in the same spot, trying to spot a 88 where it was, and a guy got him through the court. And sure, those things happened. Jim, you had a good friend at Bloody Gulch who was killed right next to you. Who was that? That was Sergeant Mull. He had the highest IQ of anybody in our unit, 142. Mine was 125 or 26. And that was high enough to get me in officer school. And they wanted me to do it. And I said, no, I don't want to be responsible for other people. I'll do my job. And then, of course, as time went on, there times when the officers got shot and there wasn't an officer around, and somebody would automatically just start going toward where we knew we had to go, and people would fall behind him. And sometimes it would be somebody that never had spoken up or, or you'd even notice, it'd be even a private, and we'd just fall behind. And then when you ran into, in one case, ran into Shettle, and he had about 25 people with us, and he wanted us to join him. And we said, no, there's a pillbox over there we're going to check out. Well, we went over, and it was empty. In the meantime, he went down to the river, and we were all supposed to be there, and there were supposed to be nine machine guns there, and there was only one. Everybody put their machine guns in a parapack. That's the thing about six feet long. It's made of heavy canvas, and you wrap up stuff in it and hang it under it just like a bomb. And those, those C-47s would have four or six of those parapacks, and each one of those parapacks had a different color chute. And the chute was 26 foot in diameter, and it had yellow, red, gray, black, whatever, and you knew when you hit the ground what was in it. And the guys designated to pick them up and take them to a certain place and then they un unrolled them and, and put the supplies out. And that's another thing. Some of those had tens of thousands of morphine shots in them. And being paratroopers behind the lines, we were 
had to carry morphine. Regular troops didn't. But sometimes we'd be back there and somebody get wounded, be three or four days before we could get medical help, and we'd give them morphine under certain conditions. Some conditions you couldn't. Some wounds you couldn't. They just had to suffer it. Never once, none, did anybody abuse that. It just didn't happen. Why don't you tell them about your experience at Bloody Gulch? Oh, you know, Sergeant Mall was sitting there next to me. These farmers had places where they had to run cattle and they built up dikes and the road was, these dikes were about six feet high and had bushes growing on them. And so when they ran their cattle through, they didn't spread out. Well, we're sitting in there and the, the artillery wasn't doing much good, but mortar shells were getting us because they went straight up and came straight down. And there was a guy there, an officer I didn't know and later found out he was an artillery spotter for one of the ships out in the channel. And finally he said, you're gonna have to get the hell out of here or we're gonna all die. And Sergeant West was there and he was getting us ready to go. And a mortar shell came down and hit Mull. Thing went in his chest and cut off the lower part of his heart. And I could see his heart and he just sat there and bled out and died right there on the spot. And that, that spotter said, it's time for us to leave here. And then there was supposed to be somebody on our right. It was supposed to be I company and they weren't there. And we had German artillery and American artillery was putting shells on it, on both of us, on, on their people and our people who were in that fight. And God, there was dead bodies every place. And Sergeant Shames uh, radioed back the sink, told him what was going on. He said, Shames, are you sure of that? And he said, damn right I'm sure of that. He said, God damn it, you don't believe it, come up here and see for yourself. He said, you come back here and I want to hear what you got to say. And so he came up and looked at that and he said, my God, he said, no wonder you felt like that. And see, there was a familiarity in airborne units because when you'd look out and you're laying in a slit trench here and you look over here 10 feet and there's your colonel laying in one too and he's going through the same damn things you're going through. And that's why we revered our officers so bad. They didn't get up and say, go get them, they got up and said, follow me. And one time we were going out on a mission at night, two scouts out front, and then the lieutenant, and then me. And there was a, a German, this is between the lines, and the German was laying there for three days and nights saying, mein Kampf, mein Kampf. And everybody thought he was calling his mother. And then one of our German guys, Smith, our machine gunner, said, no, he's saying, mein Kampf. He's still saying Hitler. So we went back there and we got within about 50 feet of him and, and the first guy put his hand up and said, we all stopped and he went over and shot this guy in the head and then we went on. Now somebody said that's murder. <clears throat> no, it wasn't murder. He wasn't a prisoner. That was justified and I would have done it myself. I didn't think about it. So what was your evolution with with violence, with with kind of the the killing side of being and didn't you know. bother me. So you jumped in behind Utah. What's your first memory of <coughs> your first memory of of someone trying to kill you and and you having to to respond in in kind? We didn't know where we were exactly. 
somebody climbed a little pole <clears throat> and read what was on it, and then we knew where we were, and then the guys started going to their different places. And then I saw a young German guy stick his head around the corner looking toward me. And I said, that guy is trying to kill me, and I shot him. Now, that's another thing. Very few people can say how many people they personally shot. It just doesn't happen that way. You're shooting everything, you don't know who you're shooting. But anyway, that didn't bother me. I knew the, what I had to do. And everybody else felt the same way. So, so what did bother you? Nothing bothered me. So, like, these friends that you had who, who died? That doesn't bother me. That, people ask me that all the time. I said, no, <clears throat> they're dead. They're out of it. I feel sorry for their families because they live with that forever. They said, well, that's pretty callous. That's no, it isn't. I feel the same way with me. So did you have, I mean, what was a low point for you like during the wars then? I didn't have any low point. We got rid of people that were emotional in training. That's what it was all about. If you're emotional, <clears throat> you don't belong in a, a unit like ours. I've got another question for you. Everybody here has been to war. When we go to war, these generations, to include me, get on commercial aircraft and fly. When you left for war, where did you leave from and what was it like getting from America to Europe? We went to Camp Shanks, Illinois. Shanks, I can't remember where it is. But anyway, we went up there to Camp Shanks. We were there about a week or so. And then we got on a ship and took 10 days to go across. That was a ship called a Samaria. It was a cruise ship, a British cruise ship for a thousand passengers. And we had 4,000 passengers on that damn thing and had all in uh, not bunks, hammocks, four high. And when you're in it, the guy's butt was almost on your forehead. And there wasn't enough room for everybody to have a bunk. So what they do, they rotated one day or so, you'd be out on the top deck all night. And then the next night, another group would be out there and you'd be in. We were on the top deck and it was 50 feet above the water. And we ran into that tremendous storm. We were looking up at the waves and they had a, an arrow on the bulkhead that was swinging back and forth 45 degrees from each side. And we we're taking bets on how soon we'd turn over. And you know, nobody got scared about it, just the way it was. And then they had a, a bunch of Indians doing the cookie. I don't mean American Indians, I mean Indian. Those sons of bitches were selling bacon sandwiches for $5 a piece. <laughs> Here we are making, now we're, we're paratroopers and we're making $100 a month. How about these other guys on there making $40 a month and they're damn guys that are selling those sandwiches. Now when you came out, they had two wash pants there like you use in a kitchen and everybody was washing their mess kits in them. And every so often they'd pour more Clorox in it. And as a result of that, almost everybody got the runs. And you can imagine what that was like on the ship. <laughs> and I, I ate one meal. We went down the hold, cook put his hand down in that 
big wooden thing. It had a bunch of uh, salt water in it, and he pulled this meat up. It was horse meat. They told us that, and it had maggots in it. And some of the guys said, my God, you can't feed that to us. We got maggots in it. And he said, well, it's live meat, and that's what you're going to eat. And that's what they did eat. You ate the one meal in 10 days. You wouldn't eat after that. I ate one meal, and that was it. I didn't eat for those 10 days. And I didn't get the runs either. <laughs> <laughs> Always a bright side. <laughs> and then on that, we had a convoy. It had a storm, and, and the fog was so bad you couldn't see a damn thing. And all of a sudden, there's bells ringing and sirens going off, and Everybody running up on deck, and here's a ship coming right at us. And the last second, it was close enough you could reach across and hold a guy's hand on the other ship, and we got away. It was that close. <laughs> and I've never liked a ship, and I don't want a ship, ever go on a ship again. And so you, you asked about his worst experience. And Jim's been coming in my office for 16 years. I'm the administrator here in the township. And Jim was very involved in local politics and being active and, and uh, having a voice in the community. And for 16 years, he's been coming and visiting. We've been, he's been telling me stories and telling me about these things. And it was just this last year that he told me about that experience. I asked the same question. How did you get over there? And he told me that story. It's the first time that I ever saw him get emotional at all was telling that story. He said they treated them worse than they treat their dogs yeah. on the way over. And to your point, you know, I, I know you guys have been through absolute hell from what you've done. But it was a decent ride over there, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And remember, we were behind the lines a lot, and that's why we carried morphine. And today, these people have a safe zone. They go out and fight in the, during the day and come back in a safe zone got sandbags all around, a roof over it, got people that uh, take care of their uniforms for them. They got cooks that cook for them. And when we were in up on the hill from us with a, the, uh, an air base, and I knew some of those guys, and I was invited up there one night, and I went through there, and, and the guy said, uh, how do you want your eggs? You mean you got eggs? And he said, yeah, how many you want? And the guy before me got eight. And I said, and he told him how much bacon he wanted. I took two eggs and some bacon. And then I came back down. I didn't tell anybody what, what I'd got up there, but we we're, were eating shit on a shingle. And that was sheep. It wasn't, it was old sheep. They were too old. And they'd come by with a truck and, and throw it out on the cinders and the the cook would drag it in there and cut it up, and and that's what we ate. And, and a lot of times I didn't eat because I just couldn't stand that stuff, and I didn't like mutton anyway. And then some of the young kids went in and ate with our people. They'd let them go in. And then one of the women came over and complained to the colonel about the kids eating there, and he said, oh, he said, we got plenty. Let them come in. She said, that isn't the problem. He said, what do you mean? He said, well, the language they're using in there. He said, what do you mean? He said, well, we were at supper one night, and my son, he, he's six years old, and he said, it is true. I hope the shit in your mess can't is true. 
<laughs> and the colonel laughed at her, but then he put out an order. You guys keep your language. <laughs> the kids can still come and eat, but you keep your language down. So that's how that worked. So how, how do you, after World War II, Korea and Vietnam and Mogadishu in the middle, and then you've got, you know, global war on terror and all these things. And you've got a lot of, so a lot of people that have done a lot of, they've done a lot for America in, in service to our country. And, and these people have a lot to process. So is it just, you know, you just haven't had to process it the same way? I'm talking more about the kind of the, the personal side, right? Like, I mean, Band of Brothers is the greatest TV series ever created, right? Every time I watch it, I, I cry, right? I'm just gonna, I'll just throw that out there right now. And you've got these- you've got Band these... of Brothers, that came from Shakespeare. Now, <clears throat> the reason Easy Company got into that, Ambrose wrote the book, and a lot of it was just pure bullshit. <clears throat> and he was down there in Louisiana going to do some filming and there was a couple of guys from Easy Company there, and they were bullshitting at a bar one night. And some Ambrose and staff went over and told him, he said, you gotta come over and talk to these guys. He said, no, we got a job to do. And he said, no, you gotta talk to him. And so he did, and that's how they got in it. And they were bullshitting, both of them. That's how people do. And these guys ran and tell you all the things they did, they're bullshitting too. And they were, but that's how Easy Company got it. And so a lot of guys, and the Easy Company guys are mad about it because <clears throat> they got a lot of flack about it and they didn't like it either. But I told everybody, look, history's dying. Ambrose wrote that book. And then Marshall, he wrote a lot of stuff and it wasn't true, but that brought the history back to life and it was dying out. And so now history's been revived and people like, Doug and I have a lot to do with that because we put all that stuff on Facebook and then people are saying we're crying and lying. And then some of the, the generals started checking into it, found out we weren't lying. And then you've probably seen lately, General McConville, a very good friend of mine, Secretary of the Army, I think now. When I got the French Legion of Honor <coughs> diplomat, from the embassy in Chicago, came down to pin that on me. And I told him I didn't want it. I said, hell, everybody in the unit should have had one. And so he came over to pin it on me, and McConville said, uh-uh. He took it away, he said, Jim's my boy, I'll pin that on him. And you've probably seen that when he put it on me. Now when he talks, you'll see my picture up behind him. And he talks about me, and I make it plain. It isn't me, I represent my unit. I'm more articulate than most people are. And you say most people don't talk because they can't stand what happened. And that's baloney too. Most guys in a hot outfit are just like me. Nothing bothers them. But they don't care about talking about it because they got other things they want to do. And the main thing when we came back, we were mad. And that woman that was the publicist for the division, she wrote an article <clears throat> and said, I had a hard time adjusting to civilian life. And I told her, you gotta change that. And she said, well, why not? Your word did have a hard time. I said, yeah, but wasn't the military. It's the way we were treated when we came back. And she said, let me tell you, in the news business, what we say today is old news a week from now. 
nobody's gonna think a thing about it, and that's the way it works. Now, went to her afterward and said, you know, you were right. But I said, it, it still rankles me that people thought the military had caused my problem, but it wasn't. And we were treated worse than the kids from come back from Vietnam. When we came back, there was still rationing. You put your name on a list, and if you got a car within a year, you were damn lucky. Gasoline was still short. Tires were still rationing. You came back from Vietnam, there were jobs for everybody if you wanted them. And that's when you the difference between then and now. We don't win wars now. We talk people to death. How much time do you spend thinking about your, your service? I don't think about it until a groups like you want me to come and talk about it. Otherwise, I don't think about it. It's just something we did. And the rest of the guys, I kept, we kept track of about 50 after the war. And now there, there's maybe eight or 10 of them left. And we get together all those years after. We don't talk about what happened in the service. We talk about the different things we do today, things do in different places and how some of them became millionaires and some of them didn't. And I don't know anybody became a bum. Tell us about your wife. You were married for 73 years, is that right? Yeah. God bless you. <laughs> well, she grew up in a small dairy farm in Iowa. At that time, there was no automatic milkers. They milked by hand, and her parents milked 30 cows. And her dad worked in a, in a shop during the day, and they did that little farm. They had 50 acres. They did farming after that, and she was teaching school. <clears throat> and she joined for civilians who wanted to learn to fly, and her brother was in high school, and so she paid for him and her to join this group. And she was the first person in her county to solo, first woman. And then she decided she wanted to get more money, so she went to an electronic school in Omaha, and they sent seven of those girls out to right field. And she was in code and teletype, and she was thrilled to death because she was crazy about airplanes, and here she saw all these airplanes and everything. And one night there was a party, a high school bunch having a party at a farm of a friend of mine's, and invited her and her girlfriend to go also, and they had a good time. And so then we were taken home, and his truck had a taillight out, and the highway patrolman stopped and said, can't let you go with that taillight out. So um, I was taking the kids home, and I took her and her girlfriend home last. And then the next flight she got off work, I was there. And that's how it came about, and that was, I got out of service in, I think, the 20th of September, and we got married in March 10th. Uh, Move fast. Of uh, 46, yeah. <laughs> and she was just like me. She was, she was tough. And that's another thing she taught me. I was pretty negative about a lot of things. And one day she said, you know, Jim, you're just too damn negative. And if you soften up a little and start looking at the good side of things. And I thought about it for a while, and I did, and things did look better. And then the first two years out, when we came back, people in tool and die shops like me, they had changed the way they did things, and we were like apprentices. 
And the people worked through the war, they kept those jobs and they're winding down so they didn't need anybody else. And they said, you guys are just like apprentices, you're gonna to have to start over, and we did. But the first two years, we damn near starved to death. We shot rabbits and squirrels to live on. We picked berries and nuts and made jam and all that stuff. And had a garden and then things got a little better and we started getting into cows and sheep and things like that. And so she was gonna stay home and take care of that. We had a milk cow and she milked the cow and made the butter and the, and the cheese and stuff. And then we had these kids and the time they were five years old, they all had chores to do and they grew up that way. And I, I would work. And then the, when I did get a job, I was working 60, 70 hours a week, sometimes 80 and 90 hours. And we had that little concrete garage on the side of the house. We had one child there. And then we got the basement covered over and moved in the basement and had a heater later in it. It was nice and warm and dry. And I made a big sandbox in one corner and had a couple of truckloads of sand in there. So the kids had a sandbox to play in all winter. And then the guys would come out to shop, we'd go rabbit hunting because we had 50 acres. And then come in and Donna would have a lunch for us. For, we'd sit around the front of the fire and talk. And, and then she made soft pretzels and glazed donuts for us. And then <clears throat> we got talking about the animals around. I said, yeah, I said, we got a bunch of flying squirrels in a tree over here. And they said, oh, come on, you're kidding. I said, well, they don't really fly, they glide, but you want to see them? And he said, yeah. So we went out and about 40 feet up, a limb had come off. And I picked up a big piece of timber about 10 feet long and whacked that a couple of times. And about 50 of them came flying out of there. And one of the guys picked up a stick and threw it. And one of them fell down. He killed it, he thought. Put it in his game bag and went back in. Donna had some more, some cider and and some food for us. And we, all of a sudden this flying squirrel got out of his, was running around in there. <laughs> they got the biggest kick out of that. And that's the way things were. And then the reason we didn't talk about it much, everybody would come back, they wanted to get, a, get married, get a job, get a house, and a lot of them did that. Now the GI Bill was the most wonderful thing ever came back, but I didn't go for it because there were a lot of restrictions, and I was going to do my own thing. But that advanced our society by at least three generations. It was all of these people that took advantage of that and went to school. They made this country run. And then somebody said to me, even today, aren't you sorry you didn't go to college? And I said, I did start to college. And Donna would tell you, they told her I had some of the highest scores that anybody ever had going into UD. And then I, this woman professor had us write a, a narrative about something and I wrote the narrative about it. And she, she said in the class, there's about 30 people. This is the best one of anybody in this class. And I thought, boy, that's, that's mine. <laughs> and then she said, I would give him an F for that. And I thought, what the hell are you talking about? And she said, no, I have different ideas and I would not grade this the way it is. 
So I quit. And then another guy in the class, he worked for the city of Dayton, and he was the housing authority in Dayton under a, a government program. And he said, Jim, don't quit. He said, look, I'll mentor you all the way through if you stay. And when you graduate, you can come work for me. And I saw him years later, and he was retired. And he said, uh, do you ever regret quitting college? And I said, not at all. I wasn't college material. I wasn't going to sit in an office someplace the rest of my life and tell somebody else what to do. When I put in 10 or 12 hours in a shop, I want to see something. And somebody has to sell a product and make a profit so these other people can sit on their ass with a computer. And I still feel that way. All of these shops like General Motors and all these airplane companies like Boeing, they depend on people like me, the designers and the people like me that build things. We build the tools that they use. And if we didn't put those in the factories, you couldn't afford to buy an automobile. And back when I grew up, they went from horses and steam to cars. It was the same thing. The only thing that they did it gradually. And there were people who had $6,000 cars at that time and everybody else was driving a $400 Model T. It's the same thing today. These people up in this high-tech stuff, I'm not jealous of them, not at all. I don't, I don't care what they make or how much they make. And my son raises hell because Bill Gates and much money. And I said, Bill Gates and Alan started a company. They saw an opportunity, things were changing and they jumped on it he quit college. He didn't have a college education. He didn't need it. And yes, he made a lot of money, and I don't care how much he may be, spending millions of dollars helping people all over the country. Now you see Bill and Linda are splitting up. I don't know what's bringing that on. Jim reads the paper every day. Yeah, he's an avid reader, in case you're wondering what but, he does in uh, his spare time. So when you hear the greatest generation, how do you no. feel about that? One of our guys said our parents were the greatest generation because they raised us the way we are. And he's got a good point. We were brought up to believe the only thing you were entitled to was to go find a job. If you didn't work, you didn't eat. And that's just the way it was. And I still feel that way. So what do you think the legacy is of the guys that you fought with? Not just your whole generation, but you know what you all did. We don't talk about a legacy. I don't talk about that. Other people do. We, we just, just like me. I'm in a good position. I don't owe any money. I've got 38 acres left. My daughter's got a piece we gave her, and we family built a house there. The family did. My wife and I built ours. If you want to call it a legacy, that's a legacy. When you produce something on your own, and we didn't hire anybody. We did it all, dug the footers, did the concrete, plumbing, heating, I did all of that. That's what a legacy is, what you have accomplished in your lifetime. Well, what do you think that you all accomplished in, in Europe? Well, a good, a good example, here a few months ago, I was supposed to go back over there and make another jump. I'd made one and they had a program called 75 and they put me on Zoom and I sat in my living room and talked back and forth and see them. And what it was about was for 75 years, 
there had not been an enemy soldier on their territory. That's what war does. Same thing here after World War II. Look how long we've gone without a major war. We have some things. We don't call them wars now, but they are wars and people still dying. But look at all the years we went in relative peace here. Wars do stop things and make peace for people. And then there's always going to be people at the top that want to control other people. And they talk about glory of war. There is no glory in war. You never hear anybody that's ever been in combat say that there was any glory in it. There isn't. The guy that's at the top, he's the guy that talking about glory. And even Hitler admitted to his people that he knew when he started this war, they weren't going to win it and would destroy Germany, but he wasn't going to let that happen. He said, we're going to still go to war. These guys are maniacs. Now, there's a thing going on right now, and I'm part of it. A group in Europe and a group here are getting together to formulate a plan to stop anybody that wants to start a war and make things better for people. And there's millions and millions of dollars invested, and I'm one of the advisors on it. And that's what we hope will happen so that we can all live in peace. You know, Jim, I'd like to tap into your memory. A lot of the guys sitting here have been through our Camp McCall, your Camp McCall. Yeah. That's where we trained. That's where we were selected and assessed. What was it like? What was Camp McCall like? when you were there? Because you left Tacoa well, and went to McCall, right? They're a trenching camp. They have permanent personnel, and we just go there for training. Okay. And then I'll tell you another fun, a funny thing. The first sergeant is telling everybody how many women he had screwed. And he said, I got a whole lot of footlocker full of their panties. And some of the officers said, we want you to go check that out to see what he says is true. So I knew if I got caught, they'd protect me. So I did. And he had a footlocker full of panties, and he probably had 200 in there, and I picked them up and started smelling them. <laughs> and they all laughed. And I said, listen, if a guy's taking a woman's panties, he isn't going <coughs> to wash them. He's going to want to smell them all the time. And that's why I smelled them. I said, what he's done, he's been taken off of somebody's washing line. And that's how that happened. <laughs> <laughs> and they always got me to do those things, these officers did, because they knew I could do it. They knew I knew enough about military law that I could get out of it as long as they backed me up. But that's another thing. In World War II, Anybody, even a private, could refuse an illegal order. And there was one case that we had, there was about a couple dozen prisoners. Now, once you're put in as a prisoner, you can't abuse them. As long as they're still in combat, you can. But anyway, these guys are there, and this uh, officer told one of the sergeants there to take your time a gun and get rid of those guys. He said, no, I won't do that, sir. He said, well, I'm going to have you court-martialed. He said, you do what you want, but there's 40 guys here watching. 
I don't think that's going to happen. And it didn't. And another thing, if one of our guys shot a person for refusing an order, he didn't have to justify it. He didn't have to tell anybody. But in our case, we had two of them. He did go down to the company commander and had the company commander back, and they talked about it. <clears throat> and what happened, there was three guys, Sergeant West, Sergeant Hutton, Sergeant Gray. They were going out on unauthorized patrols, and they found a, a house that had a lot of liquor, and they were going to get a liquor, and they were afraid to come back in our way with this liquor, so they got some guys in I company. They told them, if you let us come through you, we'll give you some of the liquor. And that went on for some time. And then one time the order came down, nobody goes out after five o'clock. There's some guys that are showing up in American uniforms and they're spies. So anybody that says they're American and coming in, you shoot them. Well, they had a replacement guy and I company and unfortunately they put him out there and they didn't tell him about this and when they tried to come back through him they said we're Americans we're Americans he shot them all three of them what was done about it not a damn thing and I didn't know about that until we were down at Branson one day and and my company commander never raised his voice and he got really angry about it he said that reflected back on all of us and they just they just hushed it up. And then one of our guys went up to New York where this uh, Sergeant West uh, family lived. And that his father was a CEO of a big steel company. And he went up there and um, to tell him about his son. That's another thing. He had a battlefield commission laying on the colonel's desk. And of course, when you get that, you sign it. And they're out of the army, and then you put you in another unit. Of course, you can't be over the same unit that you served in. It doesn't work good. Well, they went up there, talked to him, and he said, is there anything we could do for you? And he said, we're having a hard time getting it. We're building houses, and we just can't get enough nails. And he said, what kind of nails you need? And he told him, and he loaded their pickup with nails. He said, now anything you want again, you just come up here and, and you'll get it. And of course, they didn't tell him how they got shot, but that's how those things happen. And of course, we never talked about it either. Nobody did. We just, those are things that happen. There's some things that happen, just like that one with, I, I cried when he body was carried back because why didn't they talk to me and ask me about it? And a lot of people have things like that that happen that they live with. Now, I, I rarely think about it, but once in a while I do think about it. And then to tell you some of the sad stuff, we were up in a place called Utendorf in Austria, and there was a big uh, underground factory there that made parts for tanks, and we we're supposed to destroy it. And they had a big power plant. There was a big lake up there. And there was a five-foot diameter pipe came down and it ran the generators. They'd set up a kitchen then up there. And that's one of the few times we had a kitchen set up. And, of course, we were eating. And all these civilians were there. And they were 
doing the KP and, and uh, the cooking and all that stuff. And then we got through, a lot of the guys didn't eat all of it. And they'd throw it in the, this garbage can. And we got all through then, these women and men lined up and took everything out of that garbage can to take home and eat. Nice looking women. And I talked to some of the women and they were prostituting themselves to feed their family. That's how bad things were. You don't think you'll do that until these things happen. And Jim, they do happen. Jim, tell them about the cleanup at Utah Beach. When we got ready to go, there's a graves registration unit to take care of the bodies. And they're supposed to get in there right away. But during that heavy fighting, they couldn't get in there and, and all these bodies are lying there. And so uh, the day before we were to pull out, they put us on a road about 10 feet apart. And we had to go about a half a mile to another road and Greg's registration had all those trucks up there and we were drag German and American bodies. Now they'd laid out there for a couple of weeks. Can you imagine what it was like? And dragged them up there and the graves registration people threw up. They never had to handle dead bodies like that. And they threw them up there just like it was cordwood. And people said, well, that's terrible. I said, well, they're dead. They don't know it. But I permeated our clothes and hell, it took two or three weeks to get the smell out of our clothes. It's, you get used to that smell, but it's pretty, it's pretty bad. But that's part of war. It's the way it happens. I, I don't apologize for anything we did. There are a lot of things we did that we shouldn't have done. But under the circumstances, I tell people that's our business. And we talk about it sometimes at reviewing is not very much and wondered if we couldn't have done things more and got more done. We were out in Tucson that came up and we all talked about it a little bit. And I said, well, there's one thing about it, Johnny. It's easy for us to sit here today and think we could have done something more. But at the time and the circumstances, I think we all did as much as we could possibly done. And I still think that way. I like to tell people, and I want to tell you the same thing. This is not personal on me. What I did is just a representative of a unit. And yes, we were what was called a point of the, of the spear. We don't use that term. Somebody else came up with that. And yes, were we proud that we were in that unit? Yes, we were. And I'll tell you something else. If the paratroopers hadn't gone in, it would have been a, a slaughter. And Eisenhower himself said that. And they didn't buck him. They all backed it up. And we were in there fighting. And then it, about 15 years ago, one of our congressmen asked if there's some veterans that would go on a mission over there, not fighting, but some... Uh, kind of an intelligence thing of some sort. And me and another guy volunteered. And then he said, no, you're too old. I said, hell, I go to all these reenactors and I sleep on the ground and they eat the same damn stuff they do. And I said, That's, this is gonna be a picnic. And he said, no, you're not gonna do it. 
so they didn't do anything about it. I don't know what it was all about, but it did give me a medallion. But if the same thing came up again, and I was young again, I'd go again. Because I feel you, if you live in a country, whether you're on our side or the other side, and your country wants you, you should go. In any population, there's only a small percent of people who are of that nature. You go back to when they fought with bows and arrows and spears. There were two or three guys in every tribe that went out and got the game and brought it in. The rest of them, it was shared with everybody. It's the same thing today. There's the same number of people that are psychological type of person who can go to combat. And those are the only people who should go. And mostly those are the people that do go. And that's why we had that weeding out process. One guy when we were training said he didn't think he could shoot somebody. I said, what the hell are you doing here? That's the kind of things that put people out so that you don't have the misfits. And then when you go in, you'll find out why he was so damn hard on you. Colonel Sink is the only commander in his grade that refused to leave the unit and become a general twice. He said, no, I'm gonna stay with this unit throughout the war. And he's the only one that did that. Every other person in that position left and, and, and became a general before he did. And that's why we feel about our officers that way. Now, our last officer, Kennedy, died about three years ago. So all of our officers are gone. And there's probably maybe 10 of our original people still living. So pretty soon we'll be gone too. But I like to tell them when we go and talk to them, you're the one going to carry a living history. And if somebody writes something or tells you something and you've listened to me and, and these other guys like me, you can say, no, what you're saying is not right. I know this guy. We got it from him. And that's the way it is, because everybody fudges things. Anybody else got any? I was going to say, it's an honor to have uh, met you. Yeah, thank you. Well, you maybe know a few things that go on that you wouldn't find any place else. I could talk to you for five or six days and name places and places that you could check up right now and find out I was right. And people always, a lot of them even today say, didn't you think it was wonderful to go over there and see all those cathedrals and all that stuff they have? And I said, no, it doesn't mean anything. It's the people I know over there. The people are the most important. And I still know them. First thing I do when I go to any big city here or any country over there is buy a newspaper and go through it. And I have said, the Dayton Daily News is the best newspaper in America and Europe. So, well, they don't like you. How can you say that? I said, look at the exposés they do. do. Do you love it in Ohio? Damn right I do. Mm -hmm. Ohio, I like the taxing system in Ohio better than any place else. And of course, I've been in a lot of places out west, and I got friends out there in Utah. I went out there for 30 years and uh, hunting and 
Hell, I was accepted, Don and I were accepted as locals out there because we fit right in. Some people from California came in and one day and were looking for a place to rough it down in Duchesne. They came up, it was 40 miles from the city and they became good friends. And then when my dad died and Donna went out there to the funeral and I did too, but they wouldn't let us see him. Said, his doctor said he had a communicable disease. And my mother said, no, you're wrong. And he said, I'm a doctor. And he said, well, if you don't change your attitude, you're not a good doctor. And boy, he got upset. And then it came out, the autopsy, he didn't have that disease at all. He had cancer. And he worked until three days before he died. And then that's the way things happen. You can't go back. I had a lot of good life out there. We were accepted just like the regulars because we did like the regulars. And there's an old saying, it's as true then as it's today. And this bothers me a lot. The old saying is, when you're in Rome, do as the Romans do. And there's a reason for that. So Jim, what um, what do you tell people when they say you're a hero? I think they would find no, it interesting. No, we're not heroes, not at all. Look, when you volunteer for something, you train for it and you get paid for doing it, you're not a hero. And there is no such thing as a hero. There's people that do brave things, but you don't call them heroes. And that goes for firemen and policemen today. Firemen and policemen and EMTs today are as valuable to this country as we were as soldiers in World War II. And you don't think about them much. By God, when you need them, they're right there. I do have a problem with the financial thing. When they call a helicopter in and you, you get a bill for $30,000, that bothers me. And that's got to be changed. And I don't know how it's going to be changed, but it does. Hey, Jim, what's the, you told me this to my family a couple of times, what's the key to living to 100 years of age? Just do whatever you damn please. And don't pay attention to things that you can't change. One more. Lots of something. Well, and this is true. Of course, I've had to alleviate this a little, and that's alcohol. If you want to live a good life, no tobacco, and for me, no alcohol, and lots of good sex. And you're kidding yourself. If you have a marriage and your sex life isn't good, you don't have a good life, period. And that's the way it is. And any psychologist will tell you that. And I've said that some places, and there's two women that are, are, are psychologists and said, Jim just told you something for nothing that we charge for. And he's right. We have a, people come all the time, and that's a big problem in their life. And they come in there, and the woman uses sex a lot of times to push him into doing things he doesn't want. She won't give him sex. And I said, if a woman did that to me, she'd find a new place to live. <laughs> but I said, we never had a problem with that. <laughs> and people don't understand. I said, you know what? Women have sexual impulses. Look at Adam and Eve. They took a rib from Adam to make a companion for him. And this woman said the first time I said that, don't you know what that means? She said, no, I've always wondered. She said, well, 
you know what the apple is? And she said, no, I can't figure that out. That's your pussy. She said, what? He took a bite, didn't he? And she said, yeah, I understand what you're saying, right? And you're right. You hear people say, well, they should use the, the word vagina. I said, that's bullshit. Vagina has nothing to do with sex. That's way up here where the fallopian tubes are, and that's where the <laughs> sperm goes. And they said, you're kidding. I said, damn, you're a woman. You should have known that. <laughs> but yeah, let's, let's, be, let's be honest. And uh, you talk about hypocrites. The whole world is hypocrites about sex. You know why? Go to any damn museum and you see this statue of a guy up there with his Peter hanging out there and little girls going along putting their hand on it. You ever see a woman up there with her pussy showing? No. And she's artfully got her leg over that so you can't see anything. And she's got her arm over her hair. That's hypocrisy. <laughs> Both sexes are that way. They were made that way. They were made to go out and populate the world. And that's what it was all about. Any other questions, guys? Yeah, it sounds funny, but it's all true. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. We should get a photo. Yes, absolutely. Jim, they want to get a photo with me. All right, so we're back to the champagne room. Rich, we've had a little time. We've had a few conversations, more than one. W what are your thoughts? It's all about personality. I mean, this, this guy was great. Uh, he had his granddaughter uh, during this that he spoke to us uh, and several of the local community who are really supportive of him. As a matter of fact, one of the fellows that was there is really working with Pee Wee to tell his story, to, to get it out there. And he's worked with the Army PAO, uh, public affairs office produced several videos for them so it, it it's almost become a little canned story and that's why it was great to be able to sit down with him and to to take off on some of the avenues that we took off on to get him away from his standard broadcast whatever that might be yeah if you go i mean there's a lot that they've documented from yeah. these guys i mean obviously there's a whole series band of brothers go watch it read the book all that all that jazz although he is quick to tell you yeah. That he was not in easy company. <laughs> now, that, that kind of points out something that, that I get a kick out of anyway. There is a competitiveness between military units. If I'm in the fifth group, you're in the 10th group. Which group is better? It depends on which one of us you talk to. Yeah. There's always that competitiveness, and I saw it in Pee Wee. So it's, it's always been there. I think it's always been there from the Roman legions or, or even before that through, through every military organization. One organization is better than another. Uh, and he was quick to point that out uh, and, and very candid. But at the same time, he talked about the cohesiveness of those that went through the training at Tacoa that were hammered on that anvil and then went on to jump school and then went on to fight together in Europe. Yeah, so to get a little bit more real. Pee-wee has a very, he has a very strong script and he's a very strong personality. I mean, his, his granddaughter was like, hey, just, just so you know, you're gonna get his thoughts on politics, the world, and, and he's a hundred damn years old, so yeah. just deal with it. I'm like, you didn't have to tell me just to deal with it, yeah. right? I, yeah. Of course, you, someone's a hundred years old and jumped into D-Day. I mean, they can damn near think whatever they want. They, they can think whatever they want. <laughs> <laughs> There's no question about it, and, and it's honored. You know, it's just accepted. 
that's that's the way he was. That's the way he is. So you saw a couple glimmers. I saw them too, where we we asked a couple questions, not all, because sometimes his people would lob him a softball and, hey, tell us about Colonel Sink. Well, if you watch Pee Wee, he's, he's got that script down. You can go find him talk about Colonel Sink about a hundred times, yep. right? Exactly. And so he, he defaults to, and he's, it's, it's really gracious of him. And it comes from a position of altruism and wanting to give back that he's willing to, to talk these talks and not just hang out in his house and enjoy however many years or decades he has left. Right. Yep. So his time is very precious and I'm grateful that he would spend it with us. When someone asks him a question and he's, he's been asked a lot over the years, I mean, he's documented everything. He, he's got a specific answer. And so there were certain instances where I would see a little chink in some of his thought process. And, and the stuff that I've thought the most about was this idea that nothing ever bothered him and he has no, he never thinks about his service and, and he has no, there was nothing. And, and he stonewalled this. Yeah, we, we didn't get a chance to challenge him. Some of it was stopped by him. And some of it was stopped by his supporters. And I understand that. When, when you live with this guy every day and you're, you're, he's part of your family, so to speak, you don't want to challenge him. But they don't, it, want him to be, they don't want him to be vulnerable. Right. But he is. And that was the one thing that I, I kind of missed is, is being able to seriously challenge him. Because I, I would say this. He said, as you mentioned, he doesn't think about it every day. I say he does in his own way, and that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. That's part of the process. And he mentioned a couple of times that he didn't think about or it didn't affect him when a close friend died. I disagree with that too. I mean, you tend to wall that off, and I understand doing that. So tell us about that. When you are in a, a combat situation, which he was for extended periods of time, both in Normandy and during Market Garden, uh, the invasion of Holland, during Bastogne, when you're, when you're there for those extended periods of time and people close to you that either work for you or work with you that are in the same unit die, you are affected by it. But you have to, to compartmentalize that. You have to put that aside as much as possible. It never goes away completely. But you have to focus on mission, and that's what had been drummed into those guys, particularly the ones from Tokoa. The, the later replacements that came in, you didn't see that ability as much. But the guys that had gone through Tokoa, the long extended periods of training and hardship that they had to do, everything from running up and down the uh, Kurahi, the mountain there, through the, the night exercises, the, the, the forced marches, all of those things, it tends to build something within you and you learn to compartmentalize. You compartmentalize pain. When your feet start hurting and you've still got 20 miles to go, you compartmentalize that pain. And it, it's a, a mechanism that you do almost involuntarily because you've learned to do it. It's a learned activity. And if you don't or aren't the kind of person that can learn that, you're not meant for that unit. Exactly. And so you, you move on to something else. That's why, as you mentioned, they went from 6,500 people to 1,600. 
because they weeded through those people. It doesn't mean those people were bad. It's just that they were not of the ilk to participate and stay within that unit. And so you learn to do that. When you focus on mission, and that's what they learned to do, it's been one of the positive aspects of U.S. military, the ability to push leadership down to the lowest level and to push that initiative down and to push that mission focus down, that you learn that. And so Pee-wee used it. He uses it to this day. I'd love to break it down a little bit and talk to him on a, on a more individual basis. So it's one of those things, and, and we've seen this, you, you talk about veteran suicide as a huge topic of discussion. Yeah. And the problem can be, it's not, there's not, it's not one size fits all here. Right. The problem can be that you have the type of person who's never willing to share something that will make them vulnerable because it it's, makes you vulnerable. And then you right. feel vulnerable. And if you're vulnerable, then you're not invincible. And you have right. to feel invincible in order to go do the things that your country and the person to the left and right is asking you to do. Absolutely. So you've got this terrible recipe for, well, what happens when I can't control an outside force that gets inside my brain housing group or in, in you know, just physical damage, TBIs, whatever the case may right. be. There's certainly the type of personality and Pee-wee has my respect, gratitude, all of that, right? Absolutely, yes. He, he is a, I mean, he's been able to compartmentalize it successfully for his entire life. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the right word, compartmentalize. Sure. What you will see, so if, if there's people out there and say you're listening to this and you're like, I, I just, I don't think it's a reasonable avatar or a reasonable example to say you should feel that. Because I, I agree with you, to some extent, I don't, I think it's a little gray area in there. It's not black or white. Like I right. never, never's a big word. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Never, ever, ever. I mean, that's, that's an absolute. I, I would, never doesn't work, you know? And so you kind of say, I just, I don't think that's reasonable. And I think that, that you're kind of a, a case in point. I, I mean, I think about my service every day. Sure. Right. I mean, whether it's extra, how, however it's triggered or however I'm reminded, sometimes it's the pictures of the guys that I served with that are on my wall. It's an intentional yeah. trigger at times. Yeah. Other times it's not intentional. And so I think life's a messy place. And, and I think that going and seeing that type of combat and projecting that type of, of violence and seeing that violence projected against you and seeing the ramifications of that to those that you love next to you is a very difficult thing to have to endure. And he has figured out a way to successfully navigate that and become a very, very productive and happy citizen sure. for decades, for eight dec almost eight decades later. And it's an, it's an individual thing. Every individual has to figure out what works for them. Some people just total compartmentalization and never letting it out. Others tend to let it out when they choose to let it out and then put it back away again to think of it another day. And some never compartmentalize it and are, are very adversely affected by it. So it, and, it's a it's a roller coaster. And you talk about the box inside your head. Yep. And this ideal situation is that you take these memories out, especially when you're in a you're doing well. When I'm in a good place, when I'm comfortable and when I'm when I acknowledge it. It, it they don't just come out because uh, some of sometimes once in a while they, they kind of come out when they're not wanted, but for the most part, the ability to take them out 
And I'm almost willing to bet that Pee Wee does that from time to time, that he thinks about some of those things. Maybe not long and hard, but he does think about it. That's a human trait. That's a human thing to do. How do you look at it decades later? How do you do it when you know someone at a time when you were a much younger man and, and they were a much younger man? Time, extended time from, from an incident, gives you or tends to give you a, a different perspective. You're more knowledgeable of things. You, you've gained worldly knowledge. You've gained experience. And you can look back on what was before from a totally different aspect that when, than when it actually happened. And so it gives you a better place to look at it from as opposed to in the moment, in the emotionalism of the moment. You can strip away a lot of the emotion and you can use logical thought processes to think about those things that happened before. It, it still affects you. I think about some of the guys that, that I served with that are, that are no longer with us, people that, that worked for me, men that I lost. It's not a fun thing, but it's just, it's a part of life that happened. Can I explain it? No. Will I perhaps find out in the next life? Yeah, maybe. Hope so. Uh, but in the meantime, I can rationalize that those that were lost were lost for a good cause because I believed in the cause and they believed in the cause, whatever it might be at that particular point in time. Whether everybody liked it or not really doesn't make a whole lot of difference. We believed in it and we did what we thought was appropriate and the activities or the actions that resulted, we just have to learn to accept. On a slightly lighter note or a much, <laughs> much lighter note, yeah. I, I loved how he called you the kids. <laughs> like all those kids from Vietnam. And I'm sitting there and you're, you're, you know, he's in his chair, you're in the chair next to him. I'm like, this is just great. Yeah, that, that kind of caught me unawares. <laughs> the kids from Vietnam are like, wait a minute, is he talking about me? You know, <laughs> now, He's a hundred years old. He can say whatever he wants. I'm 73 years old. So be careful yeah. calling me a kid. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, you had a bunch, of, a bunch of the other cadre in the room and there was a certain... There was a certain energy to it. And he's yeah. the smallest guy in the room. Yes. Just weighed nothing. Yeah. And you think about, I mean, I've met a few of them a couple, I met a few of them a couple of years ago over in Normandy as well. I mean, they're, I mean, he was smaller, but they're not big people. No. You know, and just the stuff that they did and the they vibe. They were giants. They were giants. You're yeah. right. Yeah. The vibe from yeah. Peewee though, I mean, he was just full of energy. He was very comfortable being the, the center of attention without being an egomaniac at all. Yeah, like absolutely. He, that you could, there was no need in his life to come and do this, except that he's happy to share his experiences. And on the way, so I, I helped him a little bit to get, cause he's like, Hey, I got to go to the bathroom. I'm like, okay, cool. Right. When we were done. <laughs> and and uh, so I'm like, okay, go this way. And just stuck my arm out and he grabbed it. I mean, he didn't yeah. need to, but he did to go up into my, my dad's house and like, is there anything that just sucks about getting old? And he's like, well, what sucks is I just can't do real heavy work around my farm anymore, <laughs> around the house. Like I just can't, I can't lift all the stuff I used to lift. I just lost some muscle. Right. And then, you know, he's on some, I, God bless him. He didn't care. Cause he's like, oh, you don't need to shut the door or whatever. And I'm like, huh? Well, he had to, he had to drain a bag that he had attached to his 
calf, mm-hmm. right? And he's like, yeah, and this sucks about getting old too, right? And I'm, he just, you know, got his foot up, his left foot or whatever, I think his left foot up on the <laughs> toilet and he's dumping the bag out. And, and, you know, just very matter of fact about it, like not mm-hmm. ashamed, not, you know, the, I'm, the army breeds this need for privacy out of you. Mm-hmm. And th- it was just kind of such a matter of fact thing. And he was just shooting the shit with me about, you know, yeah, this sucks. Right. But there was no kind of pity party. It was like, I just got to do this thing. Well, you know, and that, that flowed throughout his entire conversation with us. uh, And, and from those, the few things I've seen that he's done with others, everything he did in life was just matter of fact, it was just what had to be done at that particular point in time, training for war, going to war, traveling on the troop ship, being in Europe, being in combat, losing friends, fighting the enemy. He did those things, but he did it almost in a matter-of-fact way because it was simply what needed to be done at the time that he perceived as his job. That's what I'm supposed to do, and I'm going to do it to the best of my ability. And it was trained into him from the Army, and it was just that whole attitude all the way through, get it done. Yeah, that's kind of just the generation, at least me now looking back, it's easy to say, oh, that's just kind of how his generation was. I don't know that we'll ever fully be able to open up too many of their heads and actually get, you know, I don't think they want to talk about feelings very much. (laughs) No, because it was just, it was people that had lived through the depression. It was just, we got to get this done. We've got to do things. We may or may not like them. That really doesn't matter. We've just got to get things done. And it was such a, a diverse group of people when they came together at Tekoa and, and then went to war together. There were some intellectuals. There were some grease monkeys. There were some farm boys. There was just this diversity of backgrounds that came together, but they all had that same attitude. There's a war to fight, and we're going to go fight it. And those 1,600 that made it through the selection, if you will, were the elite of the elite. Yep. He's got, you got your yeah. yellow spiral a, notebook out. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, one of the things that, that struck me that in looking at the, the books of the time, uh, everything from, from Ambrose's Band of Brothers to Cornelius Ryan's The Longest Day, that all of those historical accounts of what went on, and I heard it in, in some of his talk. He didn't, he didn't get real specific about it, but it was the idea that tactical and technical proficiency mattered. That was just what you had to do to do your job. But there was a, a warrior spirit that was pervasive in those that, that came together to fight that war. And that warrior spirit still lives in Peewee today. And that's kind of good to see. Yeah, it is. I mean, when I was there and you're looking at just across generations and you're per norm, kind of the bridge, it was just, you had this same kind of vibe. I mean, there's just admiration, respect for those that come before you. And yet, you know, that age is the difference here. Not, not that warrior spirit. Cause that right. just that, passes. That continues. Yeah. It continues generation yeah. to generation. Yeah. All right. Well, this podcast, Glorious Professionals, this is really a labor of love for us. I mean, we get to go out and chat with really great people and we find them fascinating, curious. We love their stories. 
So we're going to keep doing this no matter what. If you enjoy this, share it with a friend. We, we just happen to really love this and hope you all do too. So if you're listening, thank you.